Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. Hey, by a show of hands, how many of you love to cook? Okay, that's a good number of hands. Um, I, I love to cook as well. I really like to grill more than anything. And one of the things that I love to grill is uh, ribs, specifically. And I like to go low and slow, three hours just to, just to let them cook. And then I like to wrap them in, uh, not to make you hungry right now, but I'm trying. All right, wrap them in, in uh, aluminum foil, brown sugar, honey, butter, another two hours, and then an hour to just basically baste them. Six hours, okay? Now, in my house, if, if you're like me and you love to cook, that six hours, then when you set it on the table in front of your two young boys and it's gone in like 47 seconds, that can be frustrating. So I'm not sure they understand how much love and care and attention went into those. Now, here's why I bring that up. How many of you are grateful and how many of you noticed all the preparation that went into the meal that's about to be prepared? People in the parking lot, the band gets here, hours they practice every week, your kids that you dropped off, the people that are there to prepare, right? The time that goes in to what we're doing. I, I think it's, it's worth us just putting our hands together to say thank you to all of that. That's kind of weak. I think you can do better, right? To truly be grateful. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to continue our series in the Psalms. And it's been an awesome series so far. Preston ended a mini-series within the series of Psalms on the ABCs of intimacy. And the Psalms is the center of our Bible. This is an anthology, the historical roots of, of the people of faith that we are connected to. There are songs and their poems and their prayers. And, and these aren't superficial. We've mastered superficiality, haven't we? How are you? Fine. Good. What do you do? Uh-huh. Superficial conversation. They run rampant in our society. But the Psalms brings us back to the honesty and the depth and the beauty when a soul expresses its heart. It allows us to connect to the humanity, and I want us to, I want us to lean into this. And um, Preston ended last week with really kind of a time of reflection, and that's the way that we're going to start today. Before we get into the text, I have a question for you, and I, and I need you to think, all right? So for just a moment, when, when was the last time you felt homesick? When was the last time you felt homesick? And I want you to think specifically, what was it? What was it? What was the um, defining kind of feeling that you were homesick for? What, what was it? Food or comfort or acceptance, okay? Now here's what I'm going to ask you to do since we didn't have a question for you earlier. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet, okay? You're going to find somebody that you don't know. Remember, we're all about a connection here, not just conversation. Connection is an exchange of humanity. It's an exchange of emotion. So you're going to have two minutes each to share about that moment, the last time that you were homesick, all right? You got two minutes each. Go find somebody. Share with them that moment. Introduce yourself. Be present in that moment. I'll give you prompts to let you know when your time is coming to an end. But what was it? What stirred that longing for home? If you're joining us online, watching this, go ahead and connect with somebody that's around you. Call somebody on the phone and just take a moment to share what was it that caused your heart to miss, to sense it needed something deeper.
two minutes. You got two minutes. If you've done all the talking, maybe let the other person share their story. All right. If you're not talking to somebody, look around, find somebody who's not talking. If you can't answer the question, at least go introduce yourself to somebody. One of the best gifts that we have in this body are the people. All right? One minute, 60 seconds. You've got 60 seconds to bring that story in for a landing. Thirty seconds. Start landing that plane. Thirty seconds. Fifteen seconds. Ten seconds. Wrapping it up. Finding your seat. Five seconds. You can talk afterwards if you need to. All right. You know what? I I don't think that the term homesick is the right term. I don't think homesick's the right term because, I mean, it's not a disease, right? Even it's by definition, it's a longing. It's a longing for something, for your home, and during a a time usually of absence from it that that stirs fondness in your heart. I mean, I remember when I first got homesick, I was 17 years old, and I had left home from California to Oklahoma uh, to go to uh, school, go to Bible school. And, I mean, I, I was 17. I knew everything. I was ready to be on my own. My mom sent me a care package about the second weekend, and in it she had all these, these notes that she had written with all these gifts that she had given me. And, and, the, and the posture of depth of my heart was just, I was, I was longing for what I, I was missing. My mom's full-blooded Italian. She's quite a cook, so I was missing that cooking, right? But I was missing that comfort. I was missing the security. I was missing that environment of safety. Now, we've heard it said, right, there's no place like home. But that, that can't be said of everybody in this room. Maybe home for you was a war zone, it was chaos, uh, it was unstable, so you can't necessarily identify with it. But you know what? It can be. God's crafted a space within our hearts uh, for home. And Psalms 84 is saturated with a longing for the house of God, more specifically, the presence, the safety, the security, the comfort of God. And you should have received as you were coming in uh, Psalms 84. And if you didn't raise your hand, someone will make sure that you get one. But we're, we're going to go into this text together. And here's what I need you to do. I need you to use your imagination. I need you to see as we walk through this with your mind's eye. I need need it to allow you to have a a very real sense of what's taking place here, okay? So we're going to read it together, Psalms 84. For the choir director, a psalm of the descendants of Korah to be accompanied by a stringed instrument. That's a piano that you're hearing. That's a stringed instrument. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of heaven's armies. I long 
Yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord. With my whole being, body, and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow builds her nest and raises her young at a place near your altar. O Lord of heaven's armies, my King and my God. What joy for those who can live in your house always singing your praises. What joy for those whose strength comes from the Lord, who've set their minds on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. When they walk through the valley of weeping, it will become a place of refreshing springs. The autumn rains will clothe it with blessings. They will continue to grow stronger, and each of them will appear before God in Jerusalem. O Lord God of heaven's armies, hear my prayer. Listen, O God of Jacob. O God, look with favor upon the king, our shield. Show favor to the one you have anointed. A single day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. For the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives us grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. O Lord of heaven's armies, what joy for those who trust in you. Pretty good, huh? Verse 1. Don't miss the very first part that's in bold. A psalm of the descendants of Korah. Now, the descendants of Korah are credited with writing 11 different psalms. And they are masterpieces. They are beautiful. Psalms like, as the deer panteth for the waters, so my soul longeth after thee. But their names aren't given. In all 11, they're only identified as the descendants of Korah, which should prompt the inevitable question, who is Korah, right? So, as we all should do when we approach the text, when we approach God's word, which was, is living and alive, let's use our imagination and let's approach it like an investigative reporter with inquis inquisition, like the five W's, who, what, where, when, why, how, okay? Now, let me tell you a story. Uh, last June, my wife, Noelle, she traveled to Fort Huachuca up in Sierra Vista to represent her, her grandfather, Jack B. Cameron, who passed away in 1979. Her grandfather was being inducted into the Military Intelligence Hall of Fame alongside other heroes of our nation, including Harriet Tubman. Okay? Now, he served in the Army as the chief of the Counterintelligence Division what was known as the CIC, or the Counterintelligence Corps, which would later become the CIA. Basically, my wife's grandfather started the CIA. Probably why I love CIA movies. You know, am I the only one? Okay. All right. Now, because he was in the CIA, not much could be mentioned about his life, history, legacy, but she came to find out that he was responsible for capturing most of the Nazi officials that would later be tried at the Nuremberg trials. Now, she comes back from receiving this, this Medal of Honor and, and speaking in, in front of this group of people at the Military Intelligence Hall, Hall of Fame. She comes back with kind of a swagger, like, this is where I come from. This is who I am. I just thought she was sort of like a, kind of like a detective all the time. She, you'd have to know her to understand this. But apparently she has some ancestral roots to her ability to find out some information. But she comes home and promptly decides, we, we have a conversation. There's an attorney in our church who went to West Point, And she's decided that our 13-year-old, who really you could only say is like the mayor of everywhere, that he has a leadership gift on his life, and we need to chart him a path to go to West Point. So she asks uh, this gentleman, where should we start him? He's 13. At the time, he was 12, by the way. And he's like, well, you should put him in the Civil Air Patrol, which happens at the Scottsdale Airport here. So about a month later, he's signed up, full BDUs. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. 
all those things, and that's where he's at on his path. We'll see what God has for him in military leadership. Where are you from? Um, who are you a descendant of? Like, we are shaped by stories. Stories are significant. What do your ancestral roots look like? Possibly you're like me. And your family put the fun in dysfunctional. So the genealogy of your past is littered with litter. But our families of origin are the first place that we are discipled. We're discipled in family. That's where we receive our inherited education. Things that happened to us, things that didn't happen that should have happened. Homes often shape our heritage. What happens, they become anchors. They become fixed points in our life. We get stuck in stories. Stories become strongholds, a reinforcement. That inherited education, that record that's on repeat, right, keeps playing over and over again. Back to Korah. See, the descendants of Korah, they penned this psalm. It was compiled by David, historians believe. But Korah's story can be found in Numbers 16. You can find it a lot of places, Psalms 106, 16 and 18, 1 Chronicles 9, Exodus 6, Numbers 3, Jude 11, it's all over. And I think it's, it's there for uh, importance. Korah led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron with 250 men of renown. Korah didn't like the position that God had given him. And so there was a, a wickedness, a stirring in his heart. He wanted Aaron's position because the position that God gave him wasn't enough. So he leads a rebellion. Read the story in Numbers 16. Because Moses falls on his face before God and says, well, let's take it before the Lord. And so they come, and you can read the story, and the earth swallows up. Korah in these 250 men. Numbers 26.10. But the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them with Korah, and fire devoured 250 of their followers. This, this served as a warning to the entire nation of Israel. I mean, who wants that for your heritage story? Tell me about grandpa. Swallowed up by the earth. 250 men burned in fire. Numbers 26.11, though. It says, however, the sons of Korah, or the descendants of Korah, they did not die that day. So despite the mess messiness of their history and genealogy, God used many of the descendants of Korah. One of the most famous is the prophet Samuel. The Korahites would be assigned the task of custodian doorkeeper for the tabernacle. Some of David's mighty men were Korahites. So how do you get from being swallowed up by the earth in your family to being the descendants of Korah who penned some of the most romantic, incredible, beautiful, majestic psalms? I mean, here, here's some good news. Our family legacies don't determine everything. Should be a, a louder amen on that one. I mean, the fact in this psalm, God can redeem anything, restore anyone, including me and you. We have all been familyed, parented in homes, raised in environments of chaos and confusion and dysfunction. But the good news of God's family. This is really good news. God brings us into an environment like this to reparent us, to rehome us, to refamily us. But how? How the heck did the descendants of Korah, how did they go from here to rewriting their story and their legacy? I mean, if, if your great-great-grandfather, the story that you had heard oftentimes was about him and 250 men being swallowed up by the earth because of this 
wicked act of rebellion against the Lord, I think it would be easy for all of us to agree that these descendants of Korah would be justified in being terrified in fear of the Lord, right? Like, what? What happened? At least they would, they would walk on eggshells. But look at how they speak of God and of his house. How lovely is your dwelling place. I long for, yes, faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord. I shout joyfully with my whole being, my whole body, my whole soul. What joy, refreshing, you look with favor. I'd rather be in your house. What joy for those who trust in you. Something, something changed. They have moved from fear and trepidation to genuine passion and desire. How? How does their language go to language of lovers, not people, trying to keep the rules so God won't smoke them? Well, I think one of the things that you should write down for all of us to really embrace is they let go of their history and they grabbed hold of his story. His story. We are invited into the text. It's in narrative form, in story form, to be refamilied. Regardless of your earthly family and how wonderful or how crappy it is, God invites us into the story. He gives us the nation of Israel. We're grafted in, and then we see the stories of our spiritual fathers and grandfathers, spiritual mothers and grandmothers, and people of faith because it's supposed to ignite something. And the descendants of Korah leave behind the brokenness of their earthly genealogy to find their home in God's presence, in God's family. And I I know it's a beautiful picture of how God redeems. They did heart work, and they found his heart. We're going to talk about this, because I think for many of us, when we think about God, it's like we, we think like he's just going to do things like magic. We're going to just quote some things like it is an incantation, but that's not what we see happening in Psalm 84. They made a choice. Somewhere deep within them, they directed, guarded, guided their heart towards God's heart, and everything changed for them. And this is really my main point today. And you, you want to get this, right? Heart work is hard work. We're not scared of hard work here. The way we say it is we do hard things. This is simple, but it's not easy. It seems like the descendants of Korah influenced, established, guarded their heart towards God's. And here's what I know. The biblical understanding of the heart could be the single most important aspect of human development. It is what sets the church and the text apart from self-help. Self-help, which has a measure of impact, is focused on your habits, not God's heart. And those habits, as we all know, if I go to the gym and work out day after day, I will see change. But if it's devoid of the one who created me, how he sees me, how he thinks about me, how he loves me and cares for me, then my habits will turn into superiority or when I stop them, inferiority. But when I see things through his heart and I begin to allow my identity to be absorbed in what he says about me and now the habits that come as a result of who he's made me to be, now I'm neither superior or inferior I'm just the masterpiece that God designed me to be. The door to the kingdom. Listen, the door to the kingdom of God is a heart that believes, not simply a mind that is informed. Ladies and gentlemen, we have more information at our fingertips than any generation that has ever lived. That information is not proving to give us transformation. Why? I believe we find that the heart is something so incredible, something that desire or that demands our attention, 
God is a heart God. We're instructed to believe on Jesus in our heart. It is with the heart that man believes unto righteousness. We're to sow the word of God in our hearts to bear fruit. God speaks to us in our heart. The list of biblical references to the heart's effect on every aspect of the life seems endless. I challenge you to look it up. Look up all of the passages. And it could be said that there is nothing God does in the life of a believer that occurs outside of the realm of the heart. See, Colossians 2 tells us that our spirit has been made complete in Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, this is who I am in Christ. This is what Scripture says. Why am I not experiencing this? Because there's heart work to be done. Heart work to be done. The heart is neutral. It is a processor. It is the place, though, that we commune and hear the voice of God. It is constantly uh, receiving noise and chaos and clutter, especially in this time. So much distraction. So many uh, voices that are coming against us. What exactly is the heart? Right, I said it's, it's neutral. But it is the seed of our being. It is the real you. It is the auto, automatic pilot of your life, the seat of your identity. It is the true guidance control system of your life. The place, where, again, where you meet and commune and hear the voice of God. Now, functionally, it's the seat of all feelings, good or bad. The core of your understanding, the lens through which you see and interpret the world around you. Disobedience stems from a heart of unbelief. Who we experience ourselves to be, who we believe ourselves to be, who we feel ourselves to be determines the quality of our life. It flows from your heart. We all have a believed identity, usually as a result of the impact of our family of origin, but also through the decisions that we make and the whispers of the enemy telling us that we are unworthy, no good, you name it. But that believed identity is deeply rooted in our heart. And God wants to commune with us in our heart so that his true identity of us will be embraced, anchored, locked in, and loaded so that things will flow out of our life effortlessly. You with me? Who do you believe yourself to be? Is it consistent with who and how God sees you? God talks about you. God thinks about you. The way that God sees you and views you is completely different than the circumstances that you have gone through in your life. The voices of condemnation and rejection, the poor decisions, that's why you want to prize his voice like nothing else. Because when God talks about you and how God sees you and how heaven speaks of you is entirely different than how you're known on this earth. If that doesn't make you hungry for that, I don't have anything else for you, okay? But listen, the heart, this processor, communicates with the brain and with all the cells of the body. It's the master controller in every sense of the word. Now, scientists, doctors tell us they know the cells of the body constantly receive signals that program the function of the cells. They just don't know where that signal comes from. It comes from your heart. I'm telling you. Proverbs 23, 7. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. Guard your heart. Out of it flow the issues or the boundaries of life. See, we're personally responsible for our hearts. That's why fatalistic sovereignty is a problem. Well, God will do it. God's in control. Uh, guard your heart. No, no, God's got it. He'll take care of everything. Doesn't matter what's going on. No, I, just quote some scripture verses. Sprinkle some some water on that, and we got that. Guard your heart. You're responsible. Personal responsibility is a part of this. 
guarding your heart. Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety weighs down the heart. See, depression has to do with the heart. What you meditate on, what you think about starts as a thought and you begin to consume that to the place that you feel the weight of fear. You feel it in your heart. Proverbs 17, 20, a man of crooked heart does not discover good and one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. A bent heart finds no good. Ever been that person? Ever been around that person? Who no matter what is going on, they just see calamity? Their heart is heavy. What they have been meditating on. But Brad, they've been in church for, for 35 years. Guard your heart. God desires our connection with him to be internal, not external. Right? There's a lot of good that can take place from the external. You're here at church. It's great. You're part of the 1% who, who got up and made it here. It's great. But the work just started. Now we have to be in a place where we're looking at God's word and being able to bring it into our heart. That's when it has impact and effect. Isaiah 29, 13. And so the Lord says, these people say they're mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Examine yourself this morning. Were you fully present in the moments where our band was up here leading, or were you distracted somewhere else? Ephesians 1.18, out of the voice translation, open the eyes of their hearts. Let the light of your truth flood in. Shine your light on the hope you are calling them to embrace. Reveal to them the glorious riches you are preparing as their inheritance. You know, if you Googled, how do I see? You would soon learn that the photoreceptors in your eyes are actually deeply connected to your brain and to your heart. And that's actually how you see images. Interesting. To lose heart is to lose everything, right? Uh, most of us, we watch the oil levels in our car more than we do our hearts. The stress, the busyness, the chaos, the clutter, the confusion, the triggering... We're not monitoring those things because sometimes we're, we're so consumed by good and bad rather than healthy and unhealthy. Your heart is neutral. What have you been consuming on is, is going to allow you to start to sense and understand what is coming out of you. Now, the descendants of Korah display some activities of a healthy heart that I think will really help us. The descendants of Korah activated these heart postures. And you can read Psalms 42, 44 through 49, 84, 85, 87, 88. These are all written by them. But let's talk about what they activated. The first thing that they activated that we can activate is honor. Honor. Now, this is a, a weighty word, literally, in Hebrew, kavod. But it's, it means more than just weight. It also means to recognize the importance they honored, they paid attention to, they placed significance on, they placed significance on God's house, God's presence. They prized his presence and they placed significance on what God prized. Now Preston has said this from, from this platform. He has said, you know, coming to church once every six weeks might make you a Christian, but it it might not make you a follower of Jesus. But honoring, placing significance on what God has given us to place significance on. Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake the assembly of saints. Well, Brad, is it like magic dust? Is it like coming here, I check the box, and then somehow? No. This is an environment where God has set it up so that you could receive some nutrients, where you could be rehomed, reparented, refamilied. 
So we prioritize and prize it. Psalms 84, 1, 3, and 10. How lovely is your dwelling place. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow builds her nest and raises her young at a place near your altar. you got to see that visual. He's, he's paying attention. Did you pay attention when you walked in? Or were you so uh, just sort of disconnected? Did you notice the two trees? Every word that hangs on those walls. The fact that it says hero kids and what we're, we're establishing there. Did you see it? Did you see it with your heart? A single day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. Psalm 46, 1 through 3. God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. You don't get that unless you pay attention, unless you are aware. You wouldn't even see a sparrow making its nest. Details take place at the depth and core of our heart. Second thing they activated is humility. Best definition I can give you of humility. Give up your view and opinion for God's view and opinion. See, revelation is when the veil is removed from our eyes because we surrender our opinion, and we have lots of those. It's, it's an inherited education, the way that we see things, the voices that we listen to. Are you, you know, a Calvinist or a Arminian? No, I'm a Jesus follower. Psalms 84, 4 through 5. What joy for those who can live in your house, always singing your praises. What joy for those whose strength comes from the Lord, who set their minds on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They gave up their view and opinion of their history and genealogy. They grabbed hold of God's view and opinion of his house, of his presence. Proverbs 11.2 says this, pride leads to disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. When you give up your long-standing view and opinion of yourself, your long-standing view and opinion of the, the church hurt and the things that you've been through, not to discount those, but to let go and to grab God's view, God's opinion of the way that he sees things in the core of your heart, things transform. The third thing they activated was hunger. Hunger, a desire or a craving for. Catch this. Our hearts were designed for desire. Remember, the heart is neutral. But your and my heart was designed for desire. Desire is like a fire. Whatever you have awareness, give attention to, appreciation and affection will create appetite. So here's what happens with that fire. We all know there's been an area of our life where our desire became a fire and it burned some things down in our life. Right? The heart that was created by God to be directed by us is within our control. So when we place that towards things that will never fully handle that fire, stuff gets burned down. That's why we establish boundaries. That fire will then be energy, fuel, and life. You with me? Well, we've all had something that we've given to attention to that could never contain it. Drugs, alcohol, sex, Netflix. Oh, that was kind of a degrading scale. <laughs> but, but that's not what this passion is for. Now, I grew up thinking suppress those desires. But what I've soon realized is this heart is meant to be ablaze. And the only way that it functions for life and the truest and best version of myself is when I direct that attention and that passion towards God. Psalms 84.2, I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord with my whole being, body, and soul. I will shout joyfully to the living God. Ladies and gentlemen, that is possible for every single one of us to develop that muscle and start seeing our, our passionate fire 
Go to God and the things that he has created you and I for. That is not limiting. That is not religious activity. That is the purpose and being for why we were were created by the master of life. Psalms 42, 1 through 2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. See, fasting is where we've placed a fire in a place that will never give us life. We need to fast so that we can reset our appetite. Some of you in here know. Struggle with alcohol, drugs, whatever it is. Maybe it's pornography or what. You need a a reset Those of you, uh, this is really all of us, but I'll I'll speak to our younger congregation. The reason why we need to have a digital Sabbath is we need to reset. Our brains need a reset from social media, appearance, status, whatever it is, noise, noise. Reset. Catch your breath once a week. I'm not demonizing social media. I'm just telling you, you were not created for your desire and passion to be stuck in a scroll all your life. You were meant to be present with humanity. And every now and again, you just need a reminder. You need a break. Do it once a week. We t- sometimes help out our children and ourselves by placing our phones locked up or aside. We need that, all right? Um, appetite just reveals where you're paying attention, giving affection, appreciation. What, is you, what are you hungry for? What are you spiritually hungry for? You you could make the case that scripturally when you see people like Daniel and Nehemiah praying, they see the prophetic or the prophecy uh, uh, for Daniel specifically that that the Israelites would be in captivity for 70 years. They'd be in Babylonian captivity. He sees it with his heart and he prays with passion. And that's what unlocks that prophecy. Same with Nehemiah. It's not just some religious praying, God, bless the pygmies in Africa and, you know, help everyone be nice and sweet. Amen. That kind of prayer ain't getting anything done. I feel like saying that stronger, I'm not going to. But here's here's what I know to be true. When your eyes capture the revelation of the living word of God in an area and you begin to pray with passion, stuff starts going down. Now, Brad, what are you, what are you spiritually hungry for? I'm, I'm hungry right now. I'm hungry for healthy hearts, healthy homes, healthy habits. I'm hungry for that. I am spiritually hungry for the men within this body to start rising to the place where they see themselves the way that God does, and they start stepping into the authority given to them by God. Sign up for Men's Night. It will be an immersive, interactive experience to reshape your life. I'm passionate. I am not passionate about men's ministry. But I am passionate about men rising to the level with which God's called them. What a great, I mean, that was like four ladies cheering and all the guys are like, well, I don't know about that. I'm not, I'm not in on that. Okay. Psalms 27, 7 says this. One who is full loathes honey from the comb, but to the hungry even what is bitter tastes sweet. What does that mean, Brad? That means is if you're full of a bunch of crap, you are going to be so full that you can't even enjoy the morsels that God places in front of you. And that isn't just negative. This can also be, for those of you who are so full of theology, so disconnected from your heart with God. You're full. You can't even sit in this environment because you're evaluating my message and the fact that I'm wearing Converse shoes. You can't get over it. You're not sure, is God even in this place? Oh, he's here. Where are you? Where are you? But when you're hungry, even what's bitter tastes sweet. Fourth thing that they activated was hope. The confident expectation of good things. The phrases, what joy? When their great-grandfather was swallowed up by the earth? 
Psalms 84, Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives us grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. What? How do you write that? Like, what? What? They did some heart work. Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled, a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. We all have a heart condition. Every one of us here, what's yours? How's your heart? Listen to what Dallas Willard says. He says, he saves us, God, by realistic restoration of our heart to God and then by dwelling there with his father through the distinctively divine spirit. The heart thus renovated and inhabited is the only real hope of humanity on earth. Mic drop. Here's what we love to do around our table. How's your heart? It's not, it's not a, a statement of condemnation. How's your heart? Are you hurting? Are you exhausted? Are you angry about anything? Are you resentful? Is there some tension? It just is. This is why our hearts need to be guarded, protected, guided. There needs to be an awareness of what's gotten in so that you can begin to take the word of your mouth and the meditation of your heart from God's word and allow him to bring health and healing so that the one who sees like nobody you know sees you will cause your eyes to be 100% in line with his eyes and the way he sees you. All right, Brad, thanks for those things. Thank you so much for honor and humility and hunger and hope. Great. Well, how the heck do we start? How do we start? Glad you asked. Thank you. Our hearts transform. You can turn over your paper by this ancient Hebrew word, Hesed, or chesed, but I'm going to go with chesed because it's much easier. I don't want to spit on anyone in the front here. Okay. Now, chesed is not a word, people. It is a world. It is this incredible mass, this force. And it is the thing that unleashes honor, humility, hunger, and hope in our hearts it is the key that unlocks the heart to receiving God's love, God's goodness. It's what unlocks the heart to loving your neighbors in a genuine and authentic way. It's what causes people to go after those who are in human sex trafficking and who are being trafficked. It's what caused Liz, who stood on this stage, and her husband to be foster parents, then adoptive parents, to a child that was in a broken, hurting situation, has said. Simply defined as loving kindness, but my God, no, 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 no. The word has so much depth. It's all right there. Psalms 23, 6, Phil talked about Psalms 23, verse 6, says, Surely goodness and has said will follow me all the days of my life. It is inexpressible. It is deeply relational. It is the defining characteristic of God. This is the quality. Yes, his love, but my God, it is not just that. God loves me. No. Every psalm that turns, that's a lament, that turns is because somebody is expressing the pain and the agony, but God, your has said, and everything shifts. When you are captivated, paying attention to, fully appreciating and affectionate about how loved you are by the God of the universe, you'll start seeing yourself the way that he does. You'll start acting, not as the world and the genealogy and the history. God will rewrite your story because he is the author of salvation. He is the author of life. Have you put your pen in his hand? Moses experiences this. He starts off kicking off his sandals, ends on his face before God over time. Why? Because it's a relational word for you to experience and understand God's goodness, God's loving kindness, to overcome your thinking and thoughts about your life and, and you being disgruntled and being a victim of that situation. No, nobody's 
condemning you for that, but you've got to grow in getting to know God, getting to prize and place significance on the things that he gives to you, his house, his people, understanding that you need to be rehomed and reparented. I didn't have a good father. Well, God comes as a father to reparent you. God brings people in our body who come and they will show you a piece, not be the whole enchilada, but they'll give you a piece of what you've been lacking and what you've been missing, but you've got to open up your heart to it. David experiences this. Even in the middle of all of his mess-ups, he still sees the hesed of God. Ruth, it's incarnate in Jesus. Preston gave this definition. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Hesed is the gateway. It's the gateway to honor, to place significance on the things that God has said is significant. It is the gateway to giving up your view and opinion for God's view and opinion. It is the gateway to hunger, the craving, and the desire for. It is the gateway to a confident expectation, hope of good things. It is a gateway to a new heritage and a new story being his story, not yours. It's the foundation for health and life, and it is the foundation for your habits. It will not produce superior, superiority or inferiority. It will, it will create an atmosphere of security, confidence, Identity, purpose. And the only way we get rid of that believed identity that we're anchored to and step into the true identity of who God's made us to be is we just bask and allow Hased to hit our hearts daily, moment by moment. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.